And Father, yes, we do glorify you, Lord, and we do praise you. God, you are the one who gave us life and put us here in this place. God, you are the one who, even though we've rebelled against you and made mistakes, you are the one who sent a Messiah into our world to bring us closer to you, to restore us back to yourself. That, God, you could have left us here in our struggle, in our brokenness, in our lack of help in every sense of that word. But, God, instead you brought someone who would heal us, who would restore us, who would bring us back to you, a Messiah, an anointed one, a holy one, someone who is reflective of you and, in fact, is, in fact, holy God, divine himself. And so, Father, we just thank you for that. Lord, we're just going to take a moment right now to just go to you and just ask for forgiveness for anything that's in our lives, whatever struggles that we have, Lord, any forgiveness that we need to go through, anything that we need to be forgiven for. Lord, whatever it may be that's troubling our heart, whatever pain or struggle we may have, let's just go to you right now. Don't hold back. Don't wait for another day. Just go to you today, Lord, and ask to be made new again. Let's just do that, each of us Father, forgive us for those things, Lord, and help us, heal us, move us forward in our relationship with you. Father, we pray this morning, and we just thank you that you have given us the, the Messiah, you have given us Jesus, you have given us that baby born in a manger, Lord, that we might be able to have eternal life, that we might be able to have abundant life here on earth. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for all the blessing that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for Christmas time, that we no longer have to be king of our own lives. We no longer have to mess things up. Lord, but that you can be in control of our lives. You can be king. You can be seated on the throne. And Father, that you can bring glory to yourself through our lives. That our lives can be meaningful and can really matter. Father, we pray this morning and we just thank you. We just ask your Holy Spirit to be here among us, bringing us closer to you in our lives every day, drawing us to you. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be talking today about a Christmas prophecy. That's a series that we've been working through, looking at what it would be like to have lived in those thousands of years before Christ came. You know, it's really easy for us right now because we know Christmas is coming. We put up the Christmas tree. We put up the nativity scene. We do the Christmas thing. If we're Christians, we look back and we know that Jesus came. We know his mama, we know his daddy, we know his birth date, we know his social security number, we know where he's born, we know all this information about him, and so it is just a decision of whether or not we are going to believe in him as the Messiah, which, by the way, is not a small decision. But for the last couple of weeks, this week and next week, I wanted to ask the question, what would it have been like to have existed, to have lived in the thousands of years before Christ came? What would Christmas have been like? You know, for thousands of years, the people of God only knew that God was going to send a Messiah. They didn't know all the stuff that we know now. They only had half the Bible, right? And so they were wondering. They had questions. They had, you know, what is God going to do? And so we're going to look at this in our series of Christmas Prophecy. Our four-week series is looking forward to the birth of Jesus. Right now, we look back at the birth of Jesus. But for today, last couple of weeks, and next week, we're... We're going to look forward to the birth of Jesus. All right, here's our strategy. 
our strategy for the Christmas prophecy was this. First week, we talked about a prophecy of Jesus' origin. If you haven't been here, let me just get you up to speed on this prophecy thing, right? Prophecy, uh, if you watch the TV, you think that it's about future stuff. You know, like if I say, you know, Shane one day will weigh 300 pounds and be bedridden, you know, because he doesn't work out anymore, right? Then that would be a prophecy of the future, but it may not be true, right? Not true. Okay. And so the thing is, is that lots of times people have prophecies about the future. They're on TV. Don't turn out to be true. When the Bible talks about prophecy, 99% of the time, the Bible's prophecies are about you doing what God has called you to do. The prophets in the Old Testament would go to kings and would say, hey, dude, you are disobeying God. You need to get right with God, and you need to get your people right with God as well because you're the king, and it's your responsibility. So a lot of times the Bible doesn't speak of prophecy as foretelling, but speaks of it as foretelling. Occasionally, though, the Bible does talk about things in the future. And one of the things it does talk about is this Messiah. In fact, if we lived in the ancient world before the coming of Jesus in those thousands of years, and we only had this half of the Bible right here, right? You know, the left-hand side. We take out the right, throw it away, right? Left-hand side of the Bible. We have the left-hand side of the Bible. Then God prophesies that he's going to send his son but, you know, we don't even know that, right? Just the Messiah is going to come. So we talked the first week about a prophecy of Jesus' origin. And we talked about that one of the prophecies says that he will be born in Bethlehem of the house of David. So that's kind of specific. So specific that it was kind of weird because we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. But the truth is, is that when we looked in the original language of the Bible, it actually doesn't mean little like small as much as it means insignificant. That the Messiah would be born in this little insignificant place, as we talked about the first week. And as a result of that, that it makes it sort of weird because it's not a big place, but a small place. So it would be easy to find out whether or not he really was from there. By the way, Herod didn't believe in God. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But you guys know from the Christmas story, Herod did what? When he found out from the wise men that maybe the Messiah was Herod do. <coughs> Killed all the little babies, right? In Bethlehem, because he thought, you know, I ain't taking no chances. He didn't believe in God. Well, he believed in God. He believed that God existed. Because in the ancient world, people didn't doubt the existence of other gods. He just didn't swear allegiance to them. In our world, by the way, we meet people and they're like, oh, I don't believe in God. Right? But in the ancient world, everybody believed in God. They just may not have sworn allegiance to this God. They swore allegiance to a different God. Or they swore allegiance to themselves in Herod's situation. Herod was God. He was king, and that's what he thought of himself. So a prophecy of Jesus' origin. We talked about the fact that Jesus was born there and how unique it was that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Second week, last week, we talked about a prophecy of Jesus coming. Uh, we talked about Isaiah 7, where, and I'm just going to open to it here. It's a very difficult passage. I will tell you up front, if you were here last week, uh, I flubbed that message pretty good um, because it's such a difficult message to do. Because if we believe the Bible is true and we look at what it was like to live 2,000 years ago or, or more than 2,000 years ago when people only had this part of the Bible, when they read this passage in Isaiah, as Isaiah 7, it says this, All right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it goes on with some more information. And it, at Christmas time, if someone says that to us or we see it written, we're like, oh yeah, that, that's about Jesus. But... Isaiah spoke that to Ahaz 800 years before Jesus was born about some woman who would bear a child who would give an example uh, to Ahaz that his line would not be destroyed. And that was a small thing, 
And then in the big way, when Jesus was born of a virgin and completed the line of David later, people realized that's what Isaiah really meant. That's the, that's the double meaning that was there in that passage. What's well, a difficult passage? You know, I mentioned this at first service. Let me just ask this question. As we're going to talk about virgin birth here this morning. Why do most people not believe in a virgin birth today? Why do you think that is? Why do you think the average person, especially in the Bay Area here, if you go out and ask them, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Why will most of them say no? Is the virgin birth important? Well, I believe it's critically important. But why will most people deny it? Why are so many books in Barnes Noble written to deny the virgin birth? I mean, of all things, the Bible only mentions it two or three times. Very small little mention of it. Why does people not want the virgin birth to be true? Well, the virgin birth, among other things, is a supernatural act of God. And we all know in a modern world that God can't act in our world. There is no God. He doesn't act in our world. But I ask you, is it more difficult for God to do a virgin birth or to heal someone of cancer? Right? A lot of people, when they go to God, be like, God, I don't know if you're but I have cancer. Please heal me. And yet, which is more difficult for God to do? Of course, as Christians, we know neither one is difficult for God to do. But having a virgin birth and healing someone of cancer, it's not really that qualitatively different. Creating the universe, virgin birth, which one is bigger, right? Well, creating the universe seems bigger in a way. And so, but the, the, the fear of it is, the fear of it is, is that if people admit that Christ was born of a virgin, then it's only a slippery slope to believe in that Christ is what? Really is God, who really did die on the cross, who really does want to set our lives straight. That's, that's the ramification of it. So we talked about this virgin birth last week. We'll mention it just briefly today. Today we're going to be talking about prophecy of Jesus' birth. Um, this prophecy is going to come a short distance in time close to Jesus. It's not going to be thousands of years before, like some of them we've been looking at. This one is just only a couple of months, uh, nine months if you want to be specific. Or I wait, I, I forgot my baby math. Ten months, right? Uh, ten months before um, Jesus was born. I know some of you will correct me even further. You get, tell me the day. But prophecy of Jesus' birth. Okay, let's look at what the Bible says. It's going to be in Luke chapter 1. You want to turn there in your Bibles because we're going to be looking at that. I'm going to turn while you're turning. Um, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. <coughs> Excuse me, it'll be up on the big screen as well. I still have a cold, too. I know everyone, seems like everyone around here does. Um, let's see what the Bible says. Luke chapter 1, um, verse, starting in verse 26. All right, here's what the Bible says. So God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Let me just mention this. In the ancient world, people wrote differently than we do. So let me just give you a tip about understanding the Bible. A very Hebrew way of doing things was to answer things twice or three times, okay? So a lot of times when you're reading the Bible, you'll get the sense that 
the, someone will ask a question, the question will be answered, the person will re-ask the question, and the question will be answered again, okay? That's exactly what's going on here. It's, it's just the way people did in the ancient world. It was just a style or technique of learning and teaching that occurred then. So if you hear me do illustration after illustration after illustration, you get bored out of your mind, you fall, start falling asleep, just blame it on the Hebrew way of doing things, okay? All right, that one bombed this time. Everyone laughed first service. But you guys, it's not funny. Ah, ah okay, all right, thank you. All right, uh, he'll be very great. We call so here's A, all right? You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth. You, he will be very great and will call the Son of the Most High. Mary asked, but how can this happen? I'm virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. He will be very great, called the Son of the Most High. He will be holy and be called the Son of God. By the way, we talked about last week, right, that, that we, Jesus in Isaiah 7 will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And people were like, well, that's not the name. They named him Jesus. They messed everything up. No, this is just one of the names for him. We'll talk about that in a minute. What's more, your relative Elizabeth had become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she's now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. All right, let's break this down. First of all, three ideas, um, two prophecies here. God will communicate his plan to people. God will communicate his plan to people. One of the things that is difficult as being a Christian is believing that God will communicate with us. Because one of the struggles that we have is that we want God to communicate to us all the time. On Monday, if we decide that we want to look for a new job, we will go, oh God in heaven, please tell me whether or not I should go get a new job or not. Right? And then on Tuesday, we will say, oh God, please tell me whether I should get a new job or stay in my old job. And on Wednesday, oh Lord, please tell me. And Thursday and Friday and so on and so on. And one of the problems about the way that God communicates to us is that God is sort of someone who speaks once and then that's sort of the answer that you have. Um, God does communicate his plan to us, but when we think about the nature of prophecy, we need to realize how he does it. Let me give an example. If you lived back in the ancient world, <clears throat> then you had, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> you had the left-hand side of your Bible and this is it, right? And you're sitting there around B.C. 1000, sheep herder, whatever, what would your ideal career be in AD, B.C. 1000? I don't know. Sheep herder, um, shepherd, you know, tending your crops, whatever, working for the king. And you're reading the Bible, and God says, I'm going to send a Messiah who's going to change your life. And you're like, well, when? You know? I mean, you've been saying this for thousands of years. When are you going to do it, God? One of the ways that God works in our lives um, is, as we like to say, is an old joke but true, that God's people are on a need-to-know basis with him, right? And it's, it's an old joke, but it's true, because a lot of times in our lives when God communicates to us, he communicates to us that he does have a plan, but his way of communicating to us is generally, this is the way it is, here's my promise to you, hold on to that promise, because by doing so, that demonstrates your faith. Let me give you an example. On Monday, if I pray, oh God, please tell me whether or not I should get a new job or not. And I feel in my heart that God is saying, this is the job I gave you, this is where you need to stay. What will I do on Tuesday? Oh God, please tell me whether I need a new job or not. Right? Because like it's a day later, so God must have changed his mind. I changed my mind. 
right? I mean, I had three meals, I changed my clothes, I changed my hair, I changed this, I changed that. And all this time, I changed a lot. So certainly God must have changed his mind by now. But you know what? If you think about it, God communicated his plan to us, but it took thousands of years for it to come to fruition. You know, if you're a Christian here today, you know that God also promises that one day he's going to come back and wrap everything up, right? And sometimes people make fun of us, you know, in the media or on TV and people that we know. Occasionally they'll make fun of us and say, oh, you believe Jesus is going to come back, right? Yeah, we do. But you know what? We're not so far away from that as the people in the ancient world were because they had thousands of years. We have 2,000 years of waiting on Jesus, but the people in the ancient world waited three to four or more thousands of years for the Messiah to come into the world, only knowing that it was going to be a Messiah. But my friends, that's the difference between faith and just simply having knowledge of something. Because by faith, people believed that God was going to do what he said. You know, when God communicates his plan to us, he communicates it in such a way that we are called to believe. And that even though we may tomorrow and the next day and the next day question it, that God wants us to understand that this is his promise and this is his plan for us. That if he put us in his place, this is where we're supposed to be. Until he tells us otherwise. We Christians use that as an excuse, right? Because we'll say, well, God didn't, you know, God doesn't call me really to go to church on Sunday. He doesn't really call me to share the gospel. He doesn't really call me to, to give or to, to help the poor. No, he does I mean, because I don't have a specific statement from him today, this hour. God, should I go out today and give to the poor and help someone in need? I'm not hearing anything. Woo! I'm free. I'm set. I'm okay, right? But that's not the way that God works. Because God has already said, this is our calling in life. And so if faith really is what faith is, then it is a requirement on us that we listen to God's message. You know, all the times, and I'll move on after on prophecy after I get done saying this, but a lot of times people come to me, and usually they are brand new Christians, um, or maybe they're seekers, you know, looking out for the Christian faith, and they'll be like, Pastor, you know, I really would like to be a Christian, but God's not telling me anything. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, he gave you a whole book. Have you thought about reading that? And they're like, you're kidding me, right? I don't have to read this thing, do I? Yeah, well, it sort of does contain some messages to you. Way back in the day, before there was email or phone, people used to write letters. The Bible's full of letters for you, right? And the problem is the promises of the Bible are something that a lot of people did not take seriously in the ancient world. Look. When people thought that Je the Messiah was going to come, they didn't know it was going to name Jesus, but they, they thought the Messiah was going to come. They read it in Scripture too, but like the Pharisees, when Jesus came, they were like, you don't know nothing. You're not the Messiah. You're not anything, right? Because they were focused on themselves, not the promises of God. Biblical prophecy comes from a variety of sources. Let me just mention this real quickly. If you have your hand out, you can follow along. But biblical prophecy comes from a variety of sources. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing here is in Luke 1, the prophecy came from an angel. Um, prophecy has come from a prophet. You know, here's the weird thing about prophecy, and here's the weird thing about God speaking, is that if a prophet from the ancient world came and spoke to you, you would do what to him? I mean, if Isaiah or Jonah or one of these showed up, Hosea showed up in your front lawn, what would you do to him, honestly? 911, <laughs> you know, because these guys were not the most couth 
guys. They were not usually the most polished guys. They were not upper class. Usually they weren't middle class. They were lower class. They looked like homeless people. And they would show up at the king and go, King, you, God is calling you to do this. Which is why it torched the king off, you know, for a whole lot of reasons. So biblical prophecy comes from a variety of sources. We want to remember that when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, um, that she was confused. Because prophecy from God's messengers was disturbing. The angel most disturbing of all, you know, we've talked about this in the past. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But um, I've said this from Scripture anyway. If an angel, which just basically means God's messenger, that's all it means in the original language. If God's messenger comes to you, then probably you've done something really, really bad. You know, um, in most cases. Mary is the one exception in Scripture, pretty much. But most of the time, it means you've really screwed up in order for God himself to send someone to let him know. So we don't want God to communicate to us that way. It's better when we simply believe the promises of God and hold on to them, right? I mean, that's what faith is. How did people become a Christian? How did people become a follower of God? How did someone have a relationship with God 4,000 years ago? How did they do it? Did they go to church, synagogue, temple? They follow the law? No, those things are critically important, but they did it by faith. The Bible says, like, example of Abraham. Abraham believed God, all his promises to him, and God credited to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis. Abraham believed, and it's what made him right with God. God has given each of us promises in our lives, some general, some specific. When we believe God for those promises, that is when God works in our lives. And, by the way, that is the problem that most of us face, because we don't believe God. But that's another sermon for another time. Prophecy was from God's messengers, often disturbing. If only an angel would visit me, people say, but that's not really what they want. All right, let's talk about two of these prophecies. Here we go. The Bible foretold Jesus' kingdom. There's two things here. I mentioned there's a parallel. There's an A and the B. Um, the angel Gabriel visits Mary and says that the baby will be great and that he will be called the Son of the Most High, and it says that he will be holy, be called the Son of God. The Bible foretold Jesus' kingdom. Now, here's the cool thing. Mary's baby would be very great among people. If you read this story before, uh, let me just read it to you in the English again. Uh, it says this. Um, it says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and be called the Son of the Most High. Right? And if you read that, it's like, yeah, cool, Jesus is going to be great. Michael Jordan's great. LeBron James is great. He's going to be great, right? The problem, though, with this idea of great is that in the great in the Old Testament, throughout the whole part of the Bible is almost always used to describe God. So when the angel tells Mary that Jesus is going to be very great, he doesn't mean Michael Jordan great. He means unto like anything else that you've ever seen before. He means, the angel Gabriel means that this person is going to be from God and is going to be special among all the people born in this world. Great in the Old Testament was almost always used to God. So here's what happens. Mary hears this message that her son, this one sent from Jesus, this, this one sent from God, this one who will be Jesus, this one who was born in a virgin birth, that this one will be very great and will be almost, the better word would be today, would be majestic. That there will be a God who will send a Messiah who will be majestic and who will change the course of history. Let's talk about this a little bit. Now, <laughs> Mary's baby will fulfill a thousand-year-old prophecy. 
Actually, there are prophecies that are older than this, but I want to pick on one specifically. Mary's baby will fulfill a thousand-year-old prophecy. See, here's what happens. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. The Bible says that the child that Mary bears, specifically the Messiah, will be what? Let me just pick it up here in the story. That he will be very great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, when we read the Christmas story, we skip over that too. But, my friends, this has critical importance for us. For a long, long time, people were waiting for the king to come back. They were waiting for the king to come back, and they knew the king was going to be the Messiah. And so when Jesus came, he fulfilled a thousand-year-old prophecy. You know what? Because you guys are asleep this morning, let me just break it down in a story. Now, I'm not the best storyteller, okay? But I'm just going to do the story and uh, see if you can kind of get it, this idea. So there was a people, right? And this people lived in a place. They were people together, and they were wishing that they would have a great hero or a great king who would triumph over their adversaries. They were beset on every side. They, all of their leaders were broken and damaged, evil at times. And these people cried out, we need a hero. I think of Tina Turner in my mind somewhere there, right? We need a hero. And just as the enemy was attacking, and a huge evil warrior came a little kid came out of nowhere and killed that big Goliath guy right yay make him king and they did and so they take this little kid and they made him king and he was the greatest king you could ever possibly imagine he was awesome he was the dream come true the royal crown had been established and the kingdom triumphed and cheered, and it was wonderful. And then he had an affair, and he had some problems, and he had some really bad kids, and everything fell apart, right? And then for the next thousand of years, the, the, the reign of the king, the line of the great king who lived, just went further and further down until it fell apart, and there was no more heir to the throne. No more heir to be found. And so other people ruled in his stead, and then one day, in a very, very unexpected place, in a very, very unexpected part of the world, the king was born again, the once a future king. And he came out of that manger, and he grabbed the sword and pulled it out of the stone. Wait a minute. That king was born, and he found... He gathered his army, attacked Sauron, and he sat on the throne in Gondor, right? No, wait, that's not right either, is it? But you, you know what? Here's the funny thing. Where do all those stories come from? Who is the once and future king? It's Jesus. See, the funny thing is about the story of David and Jesus is this. Is that Hollywood, Tolkien, Star Wars, all those things, they come directly from the Bible. Now, they're not biblical truths, but they, the themes that are in those stories are biblical themes. There was an idea that there would be a king 
who was in the line long lost for a thousand years, who would one day rise again to have an eternal kingdom for all eternity. That was Jesus. The problem with the story is this, is that Judas and everyone else thought that Jesus was going to do what? Pull the sword out of the stone, take his lightsaber and go attack Caesar and sit on Caesar's throne and rule for all eternity that way. He didn't think that Luke Skywalker, Arthur, Aragorn, whatever, was going to be like, hey, I'm going to give my life and die as a criminal for everyone else because I love them. That's not, that's not the way the story's supposed to end, right? See, the problem the world has is with Easter. That's the problem the Pharisees had, that's the problem Judas had, that's the problem everyone has is with Easter. But the idea that there was going to be a Messiah, there was, and that idea comes from the Bible. And when we think about it, God wants us to be in that kingdom. You know, we have a king that's greater than Luke. We have a king that's greater than Aragorn. We have a king that's greater than Arthur. We have a king greater than all those people, partly because they're fake, by the way, if you didn't know that. Okay, I mean, there's no Luke Skywalker. Everybody's cool on that, right? They're fake. But Jesus himself is real, and we know that because why? We can archaeologically date, if you want some proof, we can archaeologically date the prophecies about Jesus to thousands of years before him. There's no doubt about that. Now, you can argue Jesus isn't the Messiah. That's fine. But the fact that the prophecies are true and Jesus was a real dude who came to be the king of the house of David, that is not within dispute. And so what happens is, is that this idea resonates with us because it's true. By the way, Genesis 49, which is even more than a thousand year old, said, this, I mean, before Jesus said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one to whom all nations will honor. The once and future king is Jesus. And that's who we worship. That's the one who came into the world. That's the one who was born in the manger. The once and future king who would be our king rather than ourselves. That's the problem. We want to be king of our own lives, but yet God wants Jesus to be the king over our life. The Bible foretold Jesus' divinity as well. You know, when we look at the B part here, what the angel says to Mary, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant, and she's got, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. So the, the Bible not only foretells Jesus' lineage, not only foretells that the king will come back, but foretells that this king will be divine, that he will be a hero, that he will be greater than anyone who has ever come before. Mary's baby would be born holy. Now, here's the word about holy. We just talked about how very great really means majestic. And in the Old Testament, it's almost always applied to God. This idea of holy is very common in the Bible. Okay, we see the word holy all the time. But here's the thing. Holy has a specific meaning. It's a specific attribute of God and God alone. How many of you see the word saint in your Bible? Everyone's maybe seen the word saint? The word saint doesn't exist. Okay, it's an Englishification there's lots of Englishifications in the Bible, uh, unfortunately or fortunately. Saint doesn't exist. What it really says is, in the original language, is holy one. Okay? So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a holy one. Saint, you'd call it that in English, but it means holy one. 
But even more specifically than holy one, it really means, if you really want to get right down honest what it means, it really means the one who has been made holy by God. Okay? Because there's no holiness in us. It is only holiness from God. The Bible always presents holiness, whether it's in an object, whether it's in a person, whether it's in something, whatever it is, as coming, originating from God. God is the only one who is holy. Mary's baby would be made holy. Now, here's the thing. Let's talk about how this works. <coughs> the baby here would be the Messiah. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about in the context of prophecy here. There are actually two Messiahs in the Bible. Anybody know who they are? Number one is who? Come on, that's the easy one. Number one is who? Jesus, okay? The, who's the second Messiah? Came before Jesus. Anybody want to guess? David, okay? David was the first king. David was the one who was the Messiah, but let me break it down what that means. Messiah also doesn't exist in the Bible. It means, it's really just a word that means anointed one, okay? That's the reason why your Bibles, when it talks about David, it'll say David is the anointed one of God. It won't use the word Messiah there because it doesn't want to confuse you. Because David is the little M Messiah, but Jesus is the big M Messiah. That's the difference. David was the first king. He was the one who God used to establish the kingdom, but he was a small shadow of what God would do in Jesus Christ, who is the capital M Messiah, the true anointed one, the one who is the once and future king who will reign for forever. David reigned for probably 20, um, I don't, let me, I'm going to embarrass myself here. I'm not sure how long he reigned, 15, 20 years, whatever it may be. Somebody may know more than that. Should have thought of that before, but. Um, he reigned for a certain number of years. But Jesus will re reign for forever. Why? Because even this day right now, he reigns as the king of our lives. And he reigns specifically from heaven as well. Now, let me break it down even a little further. Here's the thing. If you live before the time of Jesus and you look for holy ones in the Bible, why is Jesus holy rather than just capital M Messiah rather than just like everyone else? Let's look for holy people in the Old Testament. What was the Bible back then? <clears throat> David, <clears throat> holy. What do you guys think? I mean, he is the anointed one, right? Small a, small o, anointed one. Uh, yeah, until you get the whole Bathsheba or Uzziah thing, right? Nah, so he's not very, very, very holy. Not very, you know, whatever. How about Moses? No, not really either, right? Murder, you know, some problems there. Jacob? No, Abraham, uh, 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 Isaac, uh, Adam, no way, he screwed it up, right? Uh, who then? Who? Oh, I'm sorry, Eve screwed it up. No, oh, wait, okay. Ooh, yeah, I know, right? Truth is, they all screwed it up, all right. Um, who then? Who then is like Jesus? There is none. And so there is a qualitative difference between Jesus and and everyone else. We know why as Christians, if we're confessional, it's because we know that Jesus himself was God. That he was fully God, fully man who came into our world to be the Messiah. You know, he was the Messiah, the capital M, the capital A-O, anointed one. He was the one that God would bring into our lives to make a difference and to establish his kingdom forever. Listen, the Bible, all the people that live in the Old Testament, they were used by God, but they were not Jesus. They were prophets. They were people just like us. Uh, I should say they were people just like us, and their jobs happened to be prophet or king or sheep herder or whatever. 
but they were just people like us. But Jesus is different because Jesus, being God, was the one who came into the world and which to be the once and future king of our lives. Holiness is an attribute of God and a divine quality, and it is one that Jesus has for himself. Mary's baby would occupy a unique place in our world. And this is true because when we, when we look throughout history, there is, it is impossible for us to see how God could use anything else. I mean, we expect that Jesus would pull the sword out of the stone. We expect that he would have gone over there and cut Caesar's head off and that he would have ruled from there. But instead, Jesus was willing to give his life as a sacrifice for you and I in order that his kingdom would live for forever. That anyone at any time throughout history, before the writing of, before he came in this world, before the writing of the Bible, before the writing of the New Testament, all the way up until today, that anyone who would believe in God's Messiah would have life and would be a part of that eternal kingdom of God. You know, Jesus' role in our world was very different because and his coming into our world marked a change in the world because his kingdom was established for forever. And nothing, no bad guy, no Goliath, no Darth Vader, no nothing can eliminate the kingdom that was born the day that Jesus came into the world and then was willing to shed his blood on our behalf. That we look to him as our once and future king. My prayer for you today and this Christmas is that you will do that every day of the year, not just at Christmas time, but every day that you will desire to be in his kingdom and that he will be your king. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you um, that you were willing to send Jesus into our world and that he was willing to be the Messiah and willing to even die on the cross for us. Father, I pray that we will not take it lightly. Lord, I pray that we will not, um, that we will not let that truth pass us by. Lord, the world is blasé about the whole thing, as it has been for five or 6,000 years. But we know we believe in you, God, and we believe in what you've promised, and we want to be a part of your eternal kingdom. Father, we pray this morning that you would bless us and that you would encourage us and that we would live each day as if day, that day was Christmas, knowing and trusting in your promises for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.